Hello and welcome to the weekly Investor Insights call. Throughout the call, all participants will be in listen-only mode. And just to remind you, this call is being recorded. Today, I'm pleased to present Gavin Ralston and Philippe Lespinard. Please go ahead with your meeting. Thank you very much and welcome from me, Gavin Ralston, to this week's call and podcast. We, we set the rotors for who participates in this conversation several weeks in advance. Sometimes we hit lucky in the context of market events, and we certainly have done so this week uh, with Philippe talking about some pretty game-changing events in the bond markets. So until Thursday of last week, the narrative in markets was that growth was weakening, particularly earnings growth. But the dovish tone from central banks since December was enough to sustain the valuation of both of equities and other risk assets. The markets were telling us that normalization had come to an end and, if anything, short rates would now be headed downwards. Then we had a particularly weak, uh, some might call miserable, PMI statistic, a manufacturing statistic from Germany, which triggered a sharp move down in the equity market on Friday and up in the bond market. That leaves us today with 10-year yields in the U.S. at just over 240, which compares with 325 in October. And German yields have gone negative again at 10 years, uh, minus two basis points today. The other phenomenon was that the yield curve is now inverted, with three-month Treasury bill rates in the U.S. now higher than 10-year yields. And this is the first time this has happened since 2007. Again, if you go back to October of last year, the positive slope was about 100 basis points. So, Philippe, can we, can we start with how our bond portfolios are positioned in terms of duration, curve, and credit, uh, given these happenings? Yes, well, um, they, they haven't changed much uh, from before this new data. Um, and for those of you who follow us, you know that we were defensive on rates, on interest rates, so shorter duration than, than benchmark generally. But on the other side, uh, because our view was that the cycle was bottoming out, that uh, there was good value to be had in, in things like um, credit, uh, emerging markets, and and so on. So, in a way, um, uh, and and of course, the, the one thing I should add on the currency side is that the the uh, the, the fact that the Federal Reserve had sort of uh, changed their tone so radically, uh, we thought meant that the dollar was was had peaked generally. So it was a good environment for emerging market currencies and, and, and for because of weaker dollar and, and, and steadier short-term rates financing conditions in the U.S. were, were good for that, too. Um, and so uh, so Friday's data was a shock, a shock, shock to us. Um, it was a shock because not only did, did it look like the industrial sector was having a a deeper slowdown, but also that forward-looking indicators seem to indicate that we were far from the bottom. And, and our view had been that, yes, we had an industrial sector cycle, and we talked about it uh, the last time I was on, and, and you've heard from, from, um, from Keith as well, you know, the auto sector, the tech sector, the housing sector, all of these, which are important sectors, all, all had their, their own individual slowdown, if you will, and combined that was actually quite a Quite a bit slower down. And do you think growth is particularly weak in Europe? Is that what the data reveals, more so than in the US? Yes. Well, so, so yes. So the big surprise of, uh, but you, you, uh, you mentioned the German data was weak, mm -hmm. but the other countries and France as well was also weak. So mm -hmm. it wasn't just uh, just Germany. Um, and yes, the, the problem with Europe, as 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 you know, we keep uh, we keep reminding people, is because the the growth impetus in Europe. Uh, on a standalone basis, is actually quite low. The, 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 
progression, uh, you know, in the workforce and hours worked and everything else, you know, the potential economic growth is about three quarters of a percent. So for Europe to get knocked off course uh, by the global cycle is, is quite, is quite, you know, quite easy if you certainly, if you don't have that much of a, of a, of your own uh, growth impetus. Um, and so, yes, that's what, and, and Europe obviously being also a, a large export oriented uh, continent and Germany among Europe even, even, Larger uh, has a larger export um, orientation. It just tells you one thing: is that the industrial cycle in the world is not coming to an end. It's still, you know, it's still slowing down. And Germany is the, you know, is basically exposed to multiple degree mm -hmm. uh, because of its position as the provider of all these capital equipment uh, in the world. I mentioned that the the yield curve had inverted. Conventional wisdom would have it that that's a pretty good predictor of recession in about 12 months' time. Uh, Keith just upgraded his 2020 forecast for the U.S. to 1.6%. Are, are we missing something? Yeah, I'm not sure it's incompatible for a couple of reasons. One, 1.6%, 1 by the way, is very low growth rate for the U.S. Mm -hmm. for the United States because in the U.S. The, the, uh, the potential growth rate is much higher than Europe's, probably one and a quarter, one and a half. So 1.6%. We call it one and a half to, to simplify, is basically potential growth, which is not great for starters. Um, so it is a slowdown, a distinct slowdown. Now, the yield curve, the inversion of the yield curve has predicted more recessions than, than the number of recessions that have actually happened. So it, it does not follow just because the yield curve invests that you get a recession. But it is also true that in recession, prior to recession starting, the yield curve inverts because the market starts expecting the central bank to cut rates. Now, we're in this strange situation today where the market clearly prices in a little bit of rate cuts in the U.S., but the truth, in my view, is that if you were going to have a recession, then the central bank will cut rates, the Fed will cut rates by much more than it's priced in the market. Conversely, if there is no recession and it's just a temporary slowdown, then, then most likely the next move will be an increase. It might be a year from now, but mm -hmm. the next move will be an increase. So what is priced today is this middle scenario between two two scenarios that are you know that are the out the, the most like, likely outcomes but the central scenario as in they just cut rates gently by 50 base points in a year's time probably doesn't actually exist it's just the weighted yeah. average of the two outcomes um so the market is just as confused as i suppose we are but don't forget the central bank themselves the fed themselves said how confused they were in their last communication last week they went out and said that uh, a few things. First of all, uh, they were worried about the global environment. Uh, they told us that before, but clearly that hasn't changed. And I'm pretty sure they did not have the German industrial data ahead of time. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> if they had, then you would you, that would explain why they were so uh, worried about the global cycle. The other thing they did is they took the extraordinary step of saying that we're not going to change anything for a year now. Um, uh, so they provide forward guidance at a time when you know we're not in a financial crisis. You know, okay, the economy is slowing, but you know, this is not. Again, we're not talking about a recession. Uh, we're also at a time when, in the U.S. and Europe, in most developed markets, consumers have very large purchasing power gains because wages are going up, employment is going is going is still strong, and and inflation is actually uh, slowing. So the difference between you know, increases in wages, which are between three and four percent in the U.S. and between two and three percent in Europe, and inflation, which is like two percent in the U.S. and one percent in Europe, is growing. So, incomes are growing. Consumption makes up sixty to seventy percent of a developed economy. 
So the, the chances of a recession are very low for the full economy. Um, and yet the central bank takes the extraordinary step of, of essentially providing forward guidance at a time when you know, there's no sense that there's such an emergency. And are, are you comfortable that the quite extreme switch of position since December is, is driven by a genuine view of the economic fundamentals rather than an attempt to prop up asset markets? Well, I'm pretty sure that the Fed doesn't see its job at trying to prop up asset markets. I, you know, it can be accused of many things, and I know it's been under pressure by politicians and over Twitter and everything else and by the president to do things and so on. But I'm pretty sure they don't sit around saying, look, we need to increase equity prices. That's not their job. Mm-hmm. I'm also pretty sure that they are concerned about global economic developments. Um, what I find somewhat strange is that they it has taken such a large importance their reasoning when they're they are not the central bank for the world they are the central bank for the united states yeah. and i realize the dollar is very interesting important currency to everybody you know emerging markets and everywhere in the world is the large largest trading currency but nonetheless their mandate isn't to prop up world growth their mandate is to maintain the balance in the u.s market between inflation and employment they have full employment or pretty much near full employment inflation isn't that much of a problem yet, but it's it's not it's about two percent, so it's not disappeared. So I find it extraordinary they would take that step of abandoning all other options. They've already frozen the balance sheet looking forward as of September. They've frozen their interest rate policy. They've taken all the tools that they have in a toolkit out of the equation to tell us they're not going to do anything. Mm. Which I and that I find is an extraordinary step. So where does all this leave your view on credit? Maybe talk a bit about both investment grade and High yields. Yeah. So, so high yield clearly is more exposed to a, an economic slowdown. So, if there is clearly, if there is a downturn in the industrial cycle, uh, then the high yield market is most exposed, right? And, and this was not our central scenario. So, you know, to be fair, we were more looking for you know, to add risk and credit than we were looking to to, to reduce risk. But looking at the, you know, the, and by the way, we're also looking at the company profits. And, and, and results as an indication of how well they were doing. And so far, you know, we know that company uh, company earnings have been slowing, but they're not declining or anything like that. Um, so we're less, we're not that concerned with default rates, uh, you know, spiking. We're more concerned about the value, the valuation you know, of credit at a time when the slowdown seems to be continuing. So for choice, you you'd have to be somewhat defensive on high yield. And clearly, if Europe is the center of the slowdown or is the, the place most affected, then European high yields probably the place where you have to be more, most watchful. Mm-hmm. Um, by contrast, investment-grade companies, you know, they're well diversified. They're a big trading base. Uh, a lot of them are, a lot of them are, are not necessarily exposed to the to the economic cycle um, uh, or European economic cycle. Even they they tend to be have assets everywhere. Um, they're probably better insulated. So investment grade is probably a better place to. Uh, to, to invest. And, and go on from there to the loans market. There's been a lot of press comments about the potential for dislocation in that market. Yes. So loans are, they're very much like high yield bonds, except they're floating rate. And, and of course, they have they have uh, different covenants. Um, uh, they're also quite a technically driven market. And uh, the biggest buyer of um, of the uh, the biggest uh, funding uh, buyer of funding for CLOs, which is the collateralized loan obligation, which is the largest uh, part of the loan market, ha- have been Japanese financial institutions, and 
one in particular has been in the news because the uh, Japanese regulator has sent an alarm saying that we you can't keep buying on all the senior funding of all the CLOs in the world, which they were pretty much doing, right? They were literally buying all the senior funding. So there's a technical aspect there, which is that if they pull back from doing so, and by the way, there's no evidence they've stopped, but they've clearly been warned to, to slow it down. Uh, technically, the loan market has a problem because it relies on the on the ability of the senior funding, the the AAA buyer, to to accept lower rates of interest, so so the arbitrage can work between the loans and the equity and everything else. And that's clearly is a technical that's weighing on the on the loan market. Um, and so that's where I think you could focus you know, the, the spotlight. However, if you look for default rates, they haven't really spiked. There hasn't been. If there's no evidence that the loan market exposed to a wave of defaults the, the, it, of the type that we saw in the financial crisis, for mm-hmm. example. That's just that's just not in the cards. And you, you made the point a moment ago about the the resilience of the consumer with incomes outpacing very low rates of inflation. That, that's been the foundation, I think, of Michelle's relatively positive use in securitized credit and the, the dependence on consumer lending in that market. Yeah, yeah, very much so. She's. She's made the argument, and I think uh, continuously, so that that uh, yes, the, the consumer is in is less leveraged, uh, and certainly that is the case since the financial crisis. More resilient because of growing incomes, um, and therefore, you know, when you when you look at the securitized field, um, you you go from you know you go from from uh, well the CLO, which is a corporate type risk, all the way down to cars and autos, auto loans and everything else, credit cards, and those are a lot more robust. So. Again, you don't want to buy the whole ABS space, which is huge, um, but you want to be selective. And the bits that are less exposed to the global economy, um, uh, particularly the U.S. consumer, are probably the, the best uh, the best sector to look for returns. The other big story, of course, last week was further chaos in the unfolding of Brexit. Um, I've been asking your colleagues, how on earth do you navigate such an uncertain, such a binary outcome? Uh, can you talk about how you are addressing it in the fixed income markets? Yes. So, um, so the Brexit chaos um, uh, to us was uh, has always been. First of all, let's just not imagine for a second that you have unanimity of view in the macro team or even across the desk. Right? It is. It has been the subject of very hot discussions. Um, our view. However, we, we we settled on a view that was that the likelihood of no deal Brexit was getting lower as we as time passed. And I know the latest news may not uh, justify that. But because Parliament getting more involved in the conversation and, and taking essentially power from the government, uh, the, the Parliament will not let a no deal Brexit happen. And we thought there was one, one uh, asset that was underpriced, which was sterling. So we've been longer sterling versus the euro and the dollar. Um, and that's been and right. That's been right. Um, I have to say, as we get closer to the deadline, you've got, you've got to ask yourself: Is it worth taking that risk? Because you know accidents may happen, and uh, we we look like we're heading for one. Mm. Um, and you know, on the currency front, sterling has been the clearest here. Um, the the dollar has been the one that has had, um, I suppose, the, it's been less obvious uh, on the dollar on the dollar side because if again, if Europe was the, 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 the core of the slowdown, and sterling was in trouble, you know, it sort of made sense that you should go, go and buy the US dollar, and yet that hasn't really happened. I mean, yes, we had a wobble in the currencies, but the dollar's been remarkably strong. So I, I get the sense the FX market's looking for a new theme right now, and, and you know, hasn't had, hasn't had that much of a, 
anything too very strong to go on. Let's come back to the question about the shape of the yield curve, and given the uncertainty mm -hmm. as to whether there will be a recession in the next 12 or 18 months, how, how do you make money in bond markets while that uncertainty is hanging over everything? Um, well, uh, so um, yes, you, you, the, the thing with bond markets is, of course, you know, rates can fall, so you can make you can make profits on, on bonds even when from very low yields, just by the virtue of the yield falling, you get price increases. Um, that's not our core view, as you all, as you know. Um, so we got that that bit wrong. I think uh, the idea is if if the if this trajectory of interest rates is that they either stay stable or they decline gently, which is pri currently priced in, it's an ideal environment to go for the asset classes that have higher, you know, more carry, uh, as we call mm -hmm. it, higher coupons, uh, but not necessarily long, the long duration uh, assets. Um, so intermediate and short duration assets, such as you know corporate bonds or emerging market debt, for example, is is a great place to be because easier financial conditions are ideal for emerging markets. Um, the one thing that emerging markets don't like is recessions, clearly, like all risk assets. But again, we don't believe there's a recession around the corner, just slow growth. Now, if a recession's in the car, then you have to go risk off, as in full risk off. You have to reduce credit risk. You have to go and do the safest assets. Um, and you know, my view is that that's pretty much a scenario that's already in the price. Um, you know, Boons, for example, 10-year Boons trading at minus two basis points. I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You'd only buy a bund if you think either yield is going down more negative <laughs> or because you have no choice, because literally you're running out of options. Um, and that's a, you know, uh, that's not a very you know, exciting environment to be in, frankly. Mm. Um, but we don't believe there's a recession around the corner, and I should just you know, <laughs> reassure that we're, we're much more in accordance with Keith's forecast than uh, what the numbers that are currently being bandied about. Well, that sounds like a good point to draw this conversation to a close. Uh, if I can just pick up a couple of the points that Philippe has made. One is obviously the moves in bond markets last week were very significant. They took um, all market participants by surprise. Um, Philippe, I think, has been quite reassuring that we don't anticipate a recession, in particular reflecting the, the difference between the strength of the consumer uh, and the weakness of industrial demand, which has been behind some of the weakness of recent data. Uh, the area of biggest concern for weakness continues to be Europe, uh, so a note of caution on the high yield market there. And then in answer to the question about how we make money in the short term, uh, carry trades remain attractive, particularly in some of the emerging markets. So that uh, ends our time for this week. Uh, Philippe, thank you very much again for talking to us, and thank you all very much for listening. This now concludes our conference call. Thank you all for attending. You may now disconnect your lines.